Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1988, somewhere around March or April, we launched our radio broadcast, and the title that I picked for it was The Time for Truth, because that was in my mind at the time. And it seems to me that as we are now going forward in time, that that title, which is now also the title of our church here, is become more and more appropriate. I've also decided that certain subjects that I've always thought was best left alone from my own point of view has now taken on a whole different meaning that it really is the time just to speak the truth. Not that I didn't speak the truth in the past, but some things I held back on because I just didn't think it was proper. But in my prayer and contemplation before the Lord, I now feel that there's almost very little to hold back on. Because America, as well as the rest of the world, but America, our country, is circling the drain. So buckle up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 12, the Bible says, But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. I want to share with you today a message that I have given the title, Prosperity, Seeker-Friendly, and the Truth of Christ. We, as I just mentioned, are in desperate need of simply speaking the truth. And I will say we preachers are in need of just preaching the truth. With that in mind, I want to tell you the story of Hugh Latimer, who lived in the 1500s. He was a reformer in England, in the Anglican Church. And in a sermon by J.C. Ryle, he tells a story of Hugh Latimer, who was a very popular preacher, well sought after for his messages, sermons, biblical sermons. And at one point in his life, he was, I'll say, invited to preach where King Henry VIII would be present. And J.C. Ryle, he puts down and relates the story this way. As Latimer was ready to preach, the king being there, King Henry VIII, Latimer said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty king, Henry VIII, who has the power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? Then, and I'm assuming this was in Latimer's mind, he stopped and he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account yourself, Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word, which is what he did. And in the course of time, as usually happens to people who tell the truth, 
He was burned at the stake by Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, Queen Mary. In any case, real preachers have to make a decision to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And as you, Latimer, and any, again, true preacher throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, as we read the prophets and the New Testament, we read the apostles, of course, Jesus, and then throughout history, that decision has got to be made not regarding who likes it, who doesn't like it, who accepts it, who rejects it. It's not germane to the commission that's given to a true preacher. Speaking the truth in love, but still speaking the truth. Just four years ago, Barna, the research group, stated that half of all pastors are afraid to speak out on moral issues for fear of offending a church member, according to a recent poll. That's four years ago. Now think about the irony of that statement. Pastors are afraid to speak out on moral issues for fear of offending church members. The research, it goes on to say, from the well-respected Barna Group, finds that issues pastors feel most pressured to speak about are also the ones they feel most uncomfortable addressing. Quote, the pressure for leaders, and especially faith leaders, to satisfy everyone on all sides and to avoid offense is very real today, especially in the digital area, said Roxanne Stone, editor-in-chief of Barna. The public nature of social media only increases the stakes. The majority of push and pull pastors feel is coming from inside the congregation they lead. And I know this to be true. Not so much here, because to be honest with you, for those of you who are new, we eliminated much of that resistance over the years I've been here in Amsterdam. People who didn't want to hear stopped coming back. Registered their complaints, a few split the church. We've had more than one. So be it. The truth is still the truth. It doesn't change the truth. Who comes, who goes, it doesn't change the truth. And it's not my part to be kowtowing to people who simply don't want to hear it. I remember preaching a sermon when I was a very young man. One, you know, one of my first messages in a church group, I was invited, of course, by the pastor. And I was talking about being born again and, and sharing. And I'll never forget this woman came up to me afterwards, shaking her fist in my face. She says, you remember something, young man? That sermon's for you as well. I thought that was understood. She was mad. He was angry. But you know, John Wesley, when he was training the pastors that would go out in what would become the Methodist movement or the Methodist church, when they were on probation speaking, he would ask them these two questions. In your preaching, did anyone get converted? And the second question was, did anyone get mad? If the answer was no to both questions, then he would tell these young preachers on probation that it's doubtful God has called you to preach the gospel. You see, God says in Isaiah 55, 11, that his word will not return void. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be converted. It just means that, number one, as the preaching of the word of God will convert people to Christ. Not Christianity, to Christ. Secondly, those who resist the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, whatever, they get mad. And that's what preachers face. I have shared with you on occasion, I want to remind you that many, many preachers want to be loved by their congregation. I'm no exception. I want you to love me, but I don't want your love at the expense that I've got to compromise the truth of God. Now, I don't expect all of you to walk out on me here today. I really don't because I know you and you've endured me for so many years and put up with me. But I got to tell you this, if you all did and never came back, I'll still be here next Sunday all by myself. I'm not going to compromise the truth. 
I am not going to do it. In his book, which I have recommended to you, The Christian in Complete Armor, the Puritan pastor William Grenall in 1669, he wrote these words, the war is spiritual warfare, is spiritual holocaust. This is 1669. Either you destroy the power of Satan in your life by putting on the whole armor of God and keeping it on, or Satan will destroy you. The great saints, now listen, the great saints of every century have been tried in the fires of temptation. And to a man, they have been singed whenever Satan found the smallest chink in their graces. Do not disregard what history has repeatedly shown to be true. In other words, if you're going to stand up for Jesus, Satan will come after you. And by the way, when it comes to talking about Satan, it's just a matter of being reasonable that if you believe in Jesus, as you read him on the pages of the Holy Scriptures, then you must, by default, if for no other reason, believe that Satan is real because Jesus dealt with him constantly. So we believe in Jesus of the scriptures, and we must believe in Satan. And the Bible tells us that he's always going around a flock and you know, a congregation, looking whom he may devour. We sang about, let the weak say, I'm strong. Well, it should be modified by the words, I'm strong in the Lord. And Satan is going around looking for you. He's certainly looking for me, and I know quite well. The temptations that you're facing, where he can find a chink in the grace of God, Somewhere where God's grace is not entered into your life, that's what he's going to accent. Just like any good fighter would. You look for the weakness. You look for the mistakes they're making. And then you accent it to your advantage. Same with any other sport. And so we are up against it. And so I reiterate this point. That unless God intervenes through our prayers and also our obedience to the word, speaking for myself, from my own point of view, and I've gone over this and spent many hours thinking this through, I don't see any hope that what has happened to other nations in their history and in world history, as well as biblical history, will not happen here also in America. And it's happening now. And the question is, as I've been asking you lately, what are you going to do? Public exhortations to come and pray are going largely unheeded right here. You say, well, I pray at home. And you should be praying at home. There's no medal for that. That's what you should be doing. But when a call comes from the body to come together, you should be there. Because I cannot see, and I think about this again a lot, there is nothing to impede the flow of evil that we are dealing with right now. And canceling Mother's Day is not very high on the list. It's just another sign of what we see in the Bible when God starts to take his hand off of people. If my people, which are called by my name, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, we are called by his name. We call ourselves Christians, Christians, Christ. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, we cannot play with God. You know, now listen to me. Satan wants you to believe that to live a holy life is just so difficult and so hard and so boring and so on. That you take a little bit of liberty and put a chink in your armor. And Satan will take out his sword while your shield is down on the ground and stick it right in you. It's not good. Christ has called us to victory in the spirit. 
And so I say to you that we are living in a time where the scriptures say truth has fallen in the street. And we're reading it. In John chapter 18 at verse 37, 38, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. What is truth? That's the question not only asked by Pilate, but asked by tens of millions of people, if not more, billions throughout history. What's truth? What is the truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus would go on to say in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word. Here it is right here. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. When God said he would bless the nation of Israel if they obeyed his commandments, he blessed them. When God said that they would depart from his commandments and his principles and his precepts, they were cursed. So much so, they were taken off the land on more than one occasion. They never thought it could happen to them because they were the people of God. And we here both boast of our Christianity and being Americans as though that's all we need. Just to say we're a Christian and we have an American flag, nothing's going to happen to us. And you see, as I see, as we read each day, it's happening to us now. And what is the real cause? It's the pulpits of America. It's the unwillingness of pastors to have the courage to say, wherever this message falls out, I'm not in control, but I'm going to tell you the truth. That's the obligation that a preacher, a true preacher is under, to speak the truth. Who receives it, who rejects it is not the preacher's responsibility. His responsibility is to speak the truth. And so we read things like this I'm going to read to you in our news because we're living in a world of delusional thinking. Now, when you read the news, I might want to add, you can learn a lot of interesting things about life. And I found this to be very educational. It's a small little statement in medical news today. Keep your mind on the word medical news. These are experts in medicine. And I learned something. It reads this way. A person who was born male and is living as a man cannot get pregnant. <laughs> and I said, I never knew that. Medical news today, this is just a few weeks ago, they cannot get pregnant. <laughs> However, some transgender men and non-binary men can. It is only possible for a person to be pregnant if they have a uterus. And I said to myself, boy, you learn something new every day. <laughs> In other words, if a man has man parts and another man with man parts come together, they can't get pregnant. I never knew that. <laughs> But if, you know, like Caesar said, friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. If one of the ladies wants to lend me their uterus, it's possible that I could be pregnant. I did not know that a woman has to have a uterus. And this is what they're writing as news. A man, biological man, who's living as a man cannot get pregnant. Write that down. <laughs> because you're going to need to know that. Since 2003... 28 titles of various kinds have been given to biological men, identifying, as we hear the word, as women. 28 in the last 20 years. 
In the last 20 years, but actually it's been more than that. In the last year, I think I'm right when I say it's eight major titles, including the cyclist that we're reading about. He's blowing the women away, biological man with wigs on and whatever else they've gone through. To identify as a woman, and how can we question that they're not a woman? Well, for me, it's just this easy. There's a man part and there's a man part. That makes you a man. There's a woman part and a woman part. That makes you a woman. That's how I figured it out. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I'll go to medical school and find out, or just talk to a kindergarten teacher and she could tell me, am I a man or am I a boy, a boy or a girl? We have this bizarre, absurd, intellectually and morally and otherwise, these doctrines being fostered on people all over the world. That they have to be explained that if you're a biological man and you know, you're with a biological man, you can't get pregnant. Medical news today. Men are winning beauty contests as women in various states. And I saw one a few months ago. Honestly, I'm not prone to really making fun of people, but they were announcing the winner. There were some really nice-looking women in this beauty contest. And the one that they picked as the winner of the beauty contest, um, well, I'll be polite and just say she was anything but beautiful. And my mouth dropped open. I really felt sorry for these other young women who, you know, they diet and they exercise and whatever they do to win the contest, and it's vanity anyway, but I still felt sorry for them. I feel sorry for this young swimmer, this young woman who's fighting for a woman's rights to compete against women. And she was attacked. And then we're to buy the line that, hey, we're just all about peace. Accept me and we'll live at peace is what they're saying. Don't accept me, we're coming after you. And I'm telling you now that Jesus and knowing the Bible is the answer. And if you're behind, for whatever reason you're behind, you've got 31,102 verses to read and to study. That's a lot, you say? Well, then start reading. Because we are definitely a biblically illiterate country. We are not what our forefathers were. We are biblically illiterate. USA Today gave the woman of the year honor to a transgender state lawmaker. USA Today. Woman of the Year is a man. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 7, it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now prevents will prevent until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Keep that in mind. Power, signs, and lying wonders. That means, wonders means miracles in this English text. But it's being done with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for, listen, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Something that's very engaging here is the fact that it says God will send the strong delusion. And so I have singled out two aspects of problems we have inside the church today. One is the so-called prosperity gospel. And the second is what is known in my circles as the seeker-friendly church. What's wrong with this? Number one, the prosperity gospel as defined is this. The teaching that faith expressed through positive thoughts 
positive declarations and donations to the church. Draws health, wealth, and happiness into believers' lives. The prosperity gospel. There's probably not a single person in this room who's not been exposed to it at one time or another. And when I was a young Christian, these were the preachers I listened to because I didn't know any better. But the one thing that I kept hearing people say, read your Bible, read your Bible. And so I did. And with respect to a personal testimony on this line, as long as you speak right and think right and all of this, everything goes right. Yet I was having the very opposite experience. And to this day, I still am. I think right. I think properly, positive and all that. And these things go wrong. But I remember the words echoing in my mind from various preachers. Read the word. Be a word person. So I was. And then I discovered something that was very comforting. I found out that all these people written here in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole Bible, had a lot of problems. Yet they were great, Hebrews 11, they were great men and women of God. Things didn't go the way they proclaimed it. It went the way God proclaimed it. The other funny thing is that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. For me, I like to smile. I like to laugh. Regardless of how difficult life is and the stories I'm reading, including the eight people shot dead last night. Every time I come to the pulpit here now on a weekly basis, there's been another mass killing. And we cannot get used to this. We cannot just read it and keep scrolling or whatever. We've got to start seeing and I'm not really trying to frighten you. I'm just trying to awaken you to righteousness. Do not think that that could never happen to you or someone you love. Back in 1987, when we were back at the top of the hill, I told the church then, as they sat before me, about things that were happening in other cities, other places. I said, don't think that you're always going to be reading about it in the newspapers. It's happening to somebody else. It's going to be happening here, in this little hamlet, this little place and corner of the earth. And we're seeing it everywhere. Darkness is ensuing. And Christ is the light of the world. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's how we see. We see through this book. We look at the world through this book. And then we have light. But in the prosperity gospel, the basic message is this. God wants all of you rich. Every one of you. So give, and they give, and they give big amounts too. Not just hundreds of thousands. Some of them give half a million dollars in one case. And Costi Hinn, who I mentioned to you last week, and I'm going to give you a quote in just a second. I admire him for his courage to speak out against his own family. That takes a lot of courage. It's not that he hates them. He says, the Lord showed him convicted. He read the Bible. He said, it's all a ripoff. Now, if I say that, you blow Pastor Ray off because, you know, you know how he is. But when someone is involved in, in their families, then you say, wait a second, that's the same thing that Pastor Barnett said. He said that it's like a Ponzi scheme. And I told you many times, the only people getting rich are the people at the top. That's the truth. Yeah, look at me. Because I did that. No, they got wealthy off the money given to them by the people. Poor people are being exploited with lies. What is this Bible really all about? Well, there was an old man, a very miserable old man. And some people, as they get older, they're prone to be a little bit miserable, a little bit cranky. But this man was really miserable. He's very wealthy. And he went to a rabbi and started explaining his miseries. And the rabbi took him to a window, just like that window there. And he said, look out through the glass and tell me what you see. 
The man says, well, I see men, and I see women, and I see children. And took him by the arm, brought him in front of a mirror. Says, look in the mirror, tell me what you see. He said, I see myself. He said, both are made of glass, but the difference between a looking glass, where you could look outside, and a mirror is the silvering, or sometimes aluminum, that's put behind it so you see your own reflection. The problem that we have is that people are reading the Bible and they're seeing their own reflection. Oh, there it is. And I can prove it to you that God wants me rich and wealthy and all of these different things. Another thing I want to say to you, there is a problem because some of the things they say are biblical. And then when it's taken out of distortion, it seems as though it ruins the actual doctrine. But there's an expression in Latin that goes like this. Abusum non tolit usum which means abuse does not rule out the proper use of doctrine. They take a truth and then they bring it to a place of heretical proportions and then people dismiss the whole thing. This is a tactic of Satan. God heals the sick. God touches people. God fills people with the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't guarantee to Christians that you're going to live in a four, five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollar mansion which is really a compound that the kings of history past only wish they could live. Then they're there and they're popular. You know they're popular. They can fill up a stadium as quickly as any sports team. And why? Because they're fulfilling scripture when it says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. The people in front of them are being told what they want to hear, not what the scripture actually says. You do not look at the Bible to see your own reflection. You look into the Bible to see God. And that's what the book, this book, the Bible, is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 3, it says this, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, wherever cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain, financial gain, is godliness. Exactly what people are hearing. And again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but if I did, I know that almost every one of you, you've been exposed to this, and some of you bought into it. I bought into it many, many years ago until I kept studying the scriptures. I said, wait a second, something's wrong here. This isn't what the Bible says. That's not in the context of the chapter or the book or the Bible as a whole. And the Holy Spirit was good to me. So listen to this. It says they are destitute of the truth. Supposing that gain is godliness. Let me just stop for a moment and give you a definition of truth. There's many. Truth is a fact. If it's true, it's a fact. But the definition that I want you to learn or to use is truth is upholding a standard. And in this case, the standard for you and for me is this book right here. Easy one. I'll start with this. Sowing and reaping. We all sow. We all reap. How some people can't seem to figure out that they put into the ground bad things. And now bad things are coming. It's a simple principle. But truth it says here that these men are destitute of the truth. They're not really comparing scripture with scripture and teaching the Bible as it is. They're inventing it. They're making it up. They're twisting it. They're manipulating it. And they're manipulating people in the fulfillment of what the apostle Peter said. 
that they will make merchandise out of you. You're the product. You are the product. I don't mean you personally, but people. I won't tell you how much this suit costs, but I can guarantee you it's not a million dollars. They're buying suits that are worth ten, twelve, thirteen thousand dollars. Watches, fifty thousand, sixty thousand dollars, and Hummers and all these cars and homes, and they're doing it on the donations of the people. Then claiming God blessed them. Well, let's do this. Let's send all the people home for a couple of years and see how much money you make. If you're still making the same amount, then I'm going to have to acknowledge God's doing this. But it's not likely. It's a Ponzi scheme. Don't fall for it. Oh, and let me tell you this, and I told you this story once before. I want to say it again. As you know, and I've been in ministry a long, long time, I do not check the books. Now, my wife is the bookkeeper. I do not look over her shoulder so I know what everybody here is giving. I don't know what any of you give. I truly don't. And the reason that I did that early on, had that habit, because I wanted to completely trust God. Also, I didn't want the temptation for favoritism. If the big tither has a problem with me, I may be tempted to, well, I'm really not open to that, but let's just say I am, to say, oh, well, you know, what do you want me to preach? Well, I'm not prone to that, but I mean, I just, I put the temptation out of my mind, so I don't know what you give. So when I can come up here, I come with a clear conscience in this respect, I can just let the truth, let it loose. And that's my plan, to keep it up, but I need your prayers. Satan has not made my life easy, or my wife, or my family. But I'll tell you one thing I don't do. I don't quit. Don't quit. So listen to this. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. That's not even hardly a revelation. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Perdition is not a word for going to heaven and seeing God. Listen, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And I can tell you this from being involved in various things, including the church, wherever you see money and big money involved, there's corruption. Inevitably, there's corruption. Boxing, sports, politics, the church, wherever there's a love of money, there's corruption. Go back to Congress for a second. I thought to myself, maybe we should have people running for Congress and Senate who say, I will not take a salary. At least we would know they're not in it for the money. The love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. The Bible tells us and gives us the light of what we are to seek after. It's not money, but I am going to add this. I did not come into ministry to seek after money. I have also had, on occasion, thoughts go through my mind to say, you know, if you had done something else, you'd be a lot better off. And I said to myself, I'm well off now. How many preachers you know can drive a Ford Fusion? <laughs> Come on. And I have a nice home. But I never asked God for any of these things. In his generosity, like we read with Solomon's prayer, he just gave me these things. But I didn't go into ministry to manipulate people and maneuver them and get money from them. Thankfully, that's not one of my temptations either. Either way, the Bible lights our path. The other extreme is not giving money to the church, 
You know, when National Grid calls up, they say, uh, is this Pastor Barnett? Yeah, okay, don't worry about the bill. <laughs> we pay for electricity and our heat and whatever repairs, as you know. And by the way, don't make a mistake about this. The church is tax exempt. I am not. I don't know if you know that. Some people look and say, well, you don't pay taxes. Really? Let me give you an education. I pay as much or more taxes than you do. Not because I make a lot of money, just because our government's corrupt. Well, do you know the story of one of the things that really irritated Martin Luther? There was many, but it was a representative of the church, Johann Tetzel, who apparently had a saying to go around, and these are poor people. You give money, and you put it in the box, and the thing that the people bought into was this. The moment the coin in the box rings, the moment a soul from purgatory sings. In other words, as soon as you drop the money in, they're set free from purgatory. Of course, the Bible has nothing to say about purgatory, but still, people were duped, and it irritated Martin Luther, among other things, until he finally nailed his 95 thesis on the doors of the Wittenberg Castle. And you know, that was in the 16th century, and nothing has changed. Because the prosperity preachers tell you, you give your money. And this is being done not just in America, it's being done in Kenya, it's being done in Nigeria, it's being done in some of the poorest countries. People worth tens and tens of millions of dollars are telling the poorest of the poor, you give money, God will heal you. You give money, God will heal you. In some places, I don't know if it's done anymore, the seats were paid for. I don't mean like 1600s, I mean recently. You need a miracle, you're dying from a cancer, $1,000 first seats, healing. What if you got a cold? You're out in the bleachers. Those seats are cheap. Some of you are sitting in the cheap seats now. Don't expect much from this message. <laughs> you people up here pay good money. We'll take care of you. Some preachers are like longhorns. They have a point here and a point there, and everything in between is just bull. <laughs> Now, I can't use vulgarity, and it's not my habit to use vulgarity even when I'm not here, but there's times that I feel like it. There's a point here and a point there, and the rest is just bull. And how much, by the way, more bull are you going to be taking from Satan until you dedicate yourself to the Word of God, learn what it says, ask questions, read commentaries, read the old commentaries, find commentators that are dead, because now they have no chance of changing their minds or changing their writings or changing their doctrine. That's what I've always done, as a matter of fact. And that's the reason I did it. The moment the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, is what I meant to say. And that, my friends, in short order, is exactly what the prosperity church is all about. You pay, you're healed. You don't pay, God holds the blessing back. Is that what Jesus said to the poor? Is that what he said to sick people? How much money do you have? Not once, not ever. It's a con game and it is doing much damage to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll say this boldly, and it's bringing the judgment of God on our nation. Second thing, seeker-friendly. Now, if I were to want to relate to you, I wouldn't have this tie on, that's for sure. That's gone with the wind. The only people who rode in a horse and buggy wore a tie. Take off this jacket, get myself a nice slim shirt and a little cute mic, lots of PowerPoints, things flashing smoke machines for our musicians, and chocolate and vanilla malts for the rest of you. And then talk about a keto diet. Seeker-friendly. The definition, technical definition, is this. This, in a nutshell, is the essence of the seeker-friendly church, offering worldly allurements to attract the multitudes. 
the proponents of the seeker-friendly church claim to be doing whatever is necessary to, quote, reach the lost. The fallacy, this is an article, with that kind of thinking is that the lost are not seeking God at all. You say, what? And then the verse from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. So I'm going to draw a crowd. First thing's got to go is the tie. Then the jacket, cufflink shirt. I'm not going to cut it. Get myself a nice trim T-shirt, which wouldn't do much harm. I mean, in the sense of you get to see how shredded I really am. <laughs> and people say, why not Pastor Ray, man? I can relate to him. Now, let me tell you this. And whatever she did, she does. I'm not judging her salvation necessarily. I am judging the multiplied millions of dollars Joyce Meyer has made. At 79 years old, she's got two tattoos. I think the one on her back says, I love Jesus. And the one on her ankle says, love. So her husband, who's 82, got some tattoos also. Now, I know some of you had tattoos, so don't get so amped up. I'm just simply saying, what's the point? At 79, you know, your skin is not all that great to look at. Just saying. And then she goes through a whole spiel about it. I felt led and I prayed about it. And I'll go back to my example. A point here, and a point here, and a lot of bull in between. You want to get a tattoo? I saw a, guy, a friend of mine yesterday. He has USMC over here on his arm. He was wearing a shirt that says USMC. And I said, well, no one would ever guess you were in the Marine Corps. So I suggested, why don't you get one on your forehead? It was a joke. But, you know, what people do, they do. But how do you translate into that? I was prayed about it. Just leave it alone. Just come out and say, I wanted to get a tattoo. I'm 79. My husband's 82. You don't need a tattoo on your back to say, I love Jesus. Just love the brethren and everyone will know Amen. that you know Jesus. Now, for those of you who have tattoos, don't worry about it. We'll have a ministry to burn them off. I don't have one on my body at all. And that was always because I thought if I got one, what if I didn't like it when I got older, which turned out to be true. If I had tattoos that I wanted to get when I was younger, it'd be a problem when I took off my shirt. But that's not the point. The point is that, you know, these people, they make multiplied millions of dollars. Then they come up with these statements. Just look at the secret friendly church is a little bit different than the prosperity church in some ways, but the preachers are usually every bit as wealthy. So whatever it takes to get you in the door, and I know some of you have been in these churches, you can't get back to me, and you say to me, they were drinking chocolate malts during the service. You walk in the door, what's the first thing you meet after you meet the greeter that says, welcome, is a Starbucks. I'm not against Starbucks. I actually like their coffee. I like its strong forte, something you can put your teeth in. But if I had a couple of cups of coffee like that before I came to this pulpit, I'd be jumping all over the place. And people are sitting there. Guy's got a gallon of water. I mean, a literal gallon. I'm trying to preach. And I told this young guy, he's a great guy. I said, if you're not hydrated by now, this is, what are you, a camel? Look at Jesus never accommodated people. Follow me. If someone was smart enough, they say, what does that mean? Pick up your cross. Ah, what cross? I'm all about comfort. I'm all about, hey, man, I want you to be friendly. Jesus was castigated. The prophets were castigated. And I'm not saying that you will, but from time to time you will. Even your own family will reject you from time to time, and in some cases, maybe permanently. But that's the price we pay. Seeker-friendly simply means when you reduce it down to the nub, we're here to accommodate you. What is it you want? Some years ago, back in the 90s, a friend of mine who's a very well-known singer came into a seeker-friendly church when they were first starting out. You know what the introduction to the service was? Playing over the loudspeaker? 
the theme from Beauty and the Beast. Then she was told, now when you're on the platform, whatever songs you sing, don't sing about the blood. Don't talk about the blood. And the choir wasn't allowed to sing about the blood. Now you say, what? And what was the reason the pastors, plural, were giving? You see, the blood is offensive to people. We don't want to offend people. I mean, holy smokes. That's the Christian brand of cigarettes. <laughs> don't talk about the blood. Don't preach about the blood. There is no way in the world, if I was a guest in someone's church and they told me that, that I would step on that platform. And I wouldn't disobey them either because that, I don't feel, I'd just say, I'm out of here. Didn't come for your money. Didn't come for the applause. I came to preach the gospel. And you're telling me to take out of it the very thing that makes the gospel what it is? That we are washed in the blood? And you're going to play Beauty and the Beast? And what's behind all that? I'm not going to judge all these preachers and say their motives are not right. I'm not going to do that. But certainly their heads are not screwed on right. There was a preacher. And he never prepared during the week. Didn't study. I've known some of them. Well, more than just known them. And he was praying while the people were singing and the music was going. He was praying, oh Lord, give me a word. So the singing goes on. He's supposed to be preaching. He's the preacher. Oh Lord, give me a word. And finally the Lord spoke to him. He said, I have a word for you, Ralph. You're lazy. <laughs> you see, he said, just what do you do during the week, Pastor Ray? I study. I read. I meditate. I think through. I won't call it anxiety. That's the wrong word, but I'll use it. Saturday night, I'm trying to think through, God, what do you want me to say? And how do I get this across? But at the end of it, I release myself to the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit and say, God, I'm confused by my own notes, but I know that I need you to show up. When I come out of this office, there's not a time that I haven't prayed, oh God, show up in the pulpit. I pray for the song service too, but the pulpit, this is it. This is what's steering the ship. It's the word of God. And I pray, and I thank you for your prayers on Saturday nights especially. But during the week too, you'll often find me reading. Not just the Bible, I read a lot of books, researching. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy. As I told you recently, to love God with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength, I'm finding to be exhausting. But it's okay, because when I wake up in the morning, I'm good to go all over again. He renews our spirit. Amen. Preachers are not allowed to be lazy. And they're not allowed to be cowards. You've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, but you've got to have a will to say, I will do what I must do. I don't care if King Henry VIII is sitting there. I must say what I must say. This is the word of God. And as long as we still have the prosperity church in our midst, not only here in America, but across the seas, and this idea of seeker-friendly, obviously, when we have greeters at the doors, obviously we want people to feel welcome. I mean, this is a church, there was a church, I don't know if it's still there, in Ohio. This is the truth. You could not get into the church unless you were invited by someone. True. And then when you got in the church, they locked the doors. Does that raise red flags? You come to the front door and the, the greeter says, who are you a guest of? I'm a guest of Pastor Ray. All right, come on in. And then they lock the door. You can't get out. Better off not to be invited. Now here we don't hold hostages. People walk out all the time. I don't mean in the middle of a service. They walk out, they just disappear. And then they have the absolute temerity to say, well, Pastor Ray never gave me a call. Well, write this down. I'm not giving you a call. You disappear on your own and you're an adult and you want me to follow you around? I will not do it. Why don't you contact me? As people do, by the way, when they can't make a service, which is a nice courtesy. It helps me to know where people are. And they don't have to be asking them questions. 
As long as we have these churches around, we're going to have troubles. Charles Spurgeon said this back in the middle of the 1800s. He said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And then in a message entitled, Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats, right? Sheep or Christians, goats or not. Spurgeon said this, lastly, the mission of amusement in preaching fails to affect the end desired. It works havoc among young converts. Let the careless and scoffers who thank God because the church met them halfway speak and testify. Let the heavy laden who found peace through the concert, the music, not keep silent. Let the drunkard to whom the dramatic entertainment has been God's link in the chain of the conversion stand up. But he said there are none to answer. The mission of amusement produces no converts. The need of the hour for today's ministry, and this is in like 1850, 60. The need of the hour for today's ministry is believing scholarship joined with earnest spirituality, the one springing from the other as fruit from the root. The need is biblical doctrine. So understand and felt that it sets men on fire. D.L. Moody, the evangelist, same 19th century, was walking down the streets one day and a man who was truly three sheets to the wind came stumbling up to him and he recognized the evangelist Famous at the time, D.L. Moody. And he said, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody, do you remember me? He didn't. So I'm one of your converts. Smell the alcohol off his breath a mile away. He said, you must be one of my converts because Jesus' converts don't turn out that way. When man converts you to his or her theology, then you respond in the same old way, living in the flesh. When Jesus converts you, as Wesley said, well, when you hear the preaching of the word, it either converts you or makes you say, I'm not coming back and listen to this. Why, the guy down the street there, he'll tell me what I want to hear. Do you want to join athletic endeavor and have somebody say, man, you're really good when everybody knows you're not good at all? I don't. I don't want that kind of phony compliment. I want to be the real deal in anything that I do. And I know that you do too. So let me just get to this. The fundamentals of the gospel, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ. The fact that the blood of Jesus washes us from all sin. And as I mentioned earlier in prayer, it locks the gate of hell and opens the doors of heaven. And then we have the doctrine of the Trinity and we have these fundamental doctrines of which is repentance and believe the gospel. It's not believe the gospel. I see this on social media. Someone is sick and I don't blame the people for what they say. They don't know any better. I'm sending positive thoughts your way. If I'm sick, do not write to me and say you're sending me positive thoughts. Just say you're praying to God in the name of Christ that I get up off of my bed of affliction. Amen. I don't want your positive thoughts, but I know that you'd pray. And I don't blame the people because they don't know any better. I'm sending you positive thoughts. But this is in the church now. I mean, the people who are writing these things are not probably in the church, but these are in the church. Positive thoughts, positive thinking, positive confession. Joel Osteen stands up there in the beginning of the service. Say this with me. This is God's word. Come on, say, I am what he says I am. Oh, really, Joel? Maybe I should make a lunch date with him. If you play the plane fair and he'll entertain me, I'll take him to lunch. And I want to open this book and say, you realize what this book says? And you're right in what you're saying, but wrong in your presentation. We are what the book says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under the Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, not Roman Catholic Church, the whole church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. It's the earliest creed in Christianity, the Apostles' Creed. Come with me and I'll finish here in Acts chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. The Apostle Paul said he was serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And just for review... What is repentance? It means if you're a drunk, you give up drinking. If you're a drug addict, you give up drugs. If you're an adulterer, you give it up. A liar, a thief, you just keep on going down the line. God gives us grace to repent, to change, to turn 180 degrees, and then to walk first to the cross and then through the cross until we're all the way home. You are Americans sitting here today and you love your country the way I love my country, I have no confidence in politicians. Will I vote? Yes, yes, yes. I have no confidence in pundits. I don't care who they are. No confidence. Now, I'm not saying they're not saying right things. I'm just saying they got the wrong answer. We need a revival of major proportions. Yes, we need the Lord Jesus Christ to come and go beyond just singing. And then when the preaching that is applied, that people are on their faces before God saying, God, I turn, God, forgive me, and live the life as it is explained here in the book. We are what God says we are. It just doesn't turn out the way the prosperity preachers, the seeker-friendly churches, and some others along the lines say. That's what the book says. I want to exhort you because you have an advantage being under my ministry. The advantage is this. I always will remind you, go home and read it for yourself. See if I got it right. This is our light right here. We are people of the book. Is there something in your life today you need to change that you know is in contradiction to what God said not to do? Real repentance is you just stop. Doesn't mean you have immediate victory though. That's the curious thing. It just means the heart turns away from it. And we've all struggled with things we've turned away from. They come back to us, temptations, whatever. Comes to fornication, which is sex outside marriage. The Bible says flee it. And it just, you just keep going on. I'm simply asking you as we finish today, are there things you know you should be turning away from? And if you do, that's called repentance. And then you express, and this is the good news. Then you express faith in Christ. As I mentioned so often, he doesn't forgive most of your sins. I mean, I would take that if that was the offer, and then say, well, you pay for the rest. But he takes away all our sins, pays the price of every single one, whether it was an abortion or it was, you know, something. I've met murderers, I mean, actual murderers. That's why it's called amazing grace. You got a foul mouth, turn away from it. 
Vulgarity may not be necessarily sinful. It depends on the words you use, but turn away from it. And you know what I'm talking about. And you turn from it. And if you struggle with it, well, you're just normal. You're just average. That's it. I struggle with sin. I struggle with temptation. I'm just adamant that I'm not going on that side of the ledger with these other characters. You read about in the papers. God help me. That's my ambition. That when I'm dead, I can die with a clear, clean conscience. How about you? Make your ambition to die whenever that time comes with a clear, clean conscience. Is there something you need to get straight with God today? And you said, well, I, I've been talking to the Lord for a long time about this particular area. Okay, that just makes you average in struggling against sin, like all of us. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about it's wrong, you know it's wrong, but you keep doing it willfully. That's what I'm talking about. Let your heart turn from it. You that are adults, fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, let your children see you as an example of an uncompromising individual. Perfect, you're not. And they're going to pick up on that. So will your neighbors and your friends that you're not perfect. But humble and uncompromising, we must be. If we have any hope in this world of God visiting America and turning us around from this delusional craziness, God is our hope. Christ is our hope. If you're turning your heart to Christ today, I don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to say anything, do anything. Just do it. Because the fruit will be there in the days and weeks to come and months and years, of course. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we don't want a participation trophy just because we're in the game. and don't even know who won because nobody kept score. We don't want to be putting medals on ourselves we didn't earn or didn't deserve. We want to be the real deal. Which means we're going to have to apply what you say and what we read. Pour out your spirit this morning, please, Father God. Cause us to be the real thing. Cause us, God, to turn from that which you have told us to turn from, of which we all struggle with those temptations. And then we shall have the reward, the gift, I should say, of peace. Peace with God. Joy and the fruit of the spirit. Today, Lord, I pray that you convert people. Some that are maybe sitting here in the sanctuary, some watching the live streaming and others are listening on the radio have not been converted to Christ. I pray that you convert their souls, that you touch them, draw them. And one last thing today, Father, we pray for America. We have put ourselves in a real mess from violence to all types of unbelievable filthiness. And we come to you for help. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Lord, heal our land. We don't deserve it. Heal our land. Heal us, O God. And let me assure you what the scriptures say. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings in the Bible. And when he turned from his sin, God extended his life and forgave him. I'm sure that you're not more wicked than Ahab. If God would forgive Ahab, if God would forgive the apostle Paul, who was a murderer, you could be assured he's going to forgive you. The book says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Let's thank God that he is over his universe. So, Father, we ask you to bless the fellowship we're about to have, the food we're about to eat, the hands that prepared it. We ask you today, Lord, Father God, to help us to prove that we love Jesus and that you love us, not by tattoos, but by our behavior, by how we treat each other. And this week, God, remind us to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength, and remind us to love one another. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Can you say amen today? Amen. Amen.